From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal agencies will get new deliveries of personal protective equipment this week from the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the Department of Health and Human Services. The supplies include N95 masks, gloves, and any special equipment agencies need to fulfill missions. GovExec reports Homeland Security and Veterans Affairs will get some of the early shipments. The Senate Armed Services Committee will convene this week to consider nominations, including Ambassador Kenneth Brathwaite, to be the next Secretary of the Navy. The Washington Examiner reports the nominations of General C.Q. Brown to be Chief of Staff of the Air Force and James Anderson to be Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy are also on the committee's agenda. USNI News reports the committee will live stream hearings, but those hearings won't be open to the public because of COVID-19. Small and micro agencies can buy cyber services through the General Services Administration through a new shared services catalog from CGI Federal. The contract's worth $276 million. Federal News Network reports the solicitation came out in November. The contract's been in the works for two years. Some employees at the Internal Revenue Service are back at their desks this week as the agency tries to accommodate the new July 15th end to the tax season. The agency is asking its employees to supply their own masks and gloves, but the National Treasury Employees Union warns the early return might be a bad idea. Tony Reardon's president of NTEU. Tony, thanks very much for coming on. What are you seeing, not just at the IRS, but all across the government, as agencies are starting to talk about ways to bring their employees back to the office? Well, you know, let me just uh, mention you, uh, you said something about the IRS um, uh, asking folks to bring uh, their own masks, uh, for, for example, Francis, and, and originally they did that, but then the IRS, I, I, I do want to make clear, uh, they came back and they uh, indicated that, in fact, they're going to have uh, masks available for anybody uh, who does not have one, which we think is is a uh, is a good outcome, you know the concern that we have, Francis, you know across the board um, at agencies where uh, we represent employees, is we we want to make certain that employees are able to continue to uh, uh, utilize uh, or in agencies utilize maximum telework. Um, certainly for those who are out teleworking and can continue to do that effectively, as well as um, for those employees who are high-risk employees. Um, I am concerned that if employees are called back to the office um, too soon, before there are social distancing policies in place so that employees are safe, before there is effective testing, before um, there's the disinfectants that are needing and offices are effectively cleaned. That puts employees at jeopardy. That then um, uh, puts their families in jeopardy and our communities. So I think there's a lot of concern here. And we are now hearing from um, a lot of different uh, reports that now the number of employees or the number of citizens who might um, contract this disease, it's starting to look like it's on the rise again. You've got, a, you've got a list on your website about the things that you want to see in place before employees, before it's safe for employees to come back. The top of the list is that uh, local jurisdictions are saying that it's safe in those areas. 
Um, we've talked on the program a couple of times in the last week or so about the letter that the governor of Maryland, the governor of Virginia, and the mayor of the District of Columbia have sent to the Office of Personnel Management. Mike Regas addressed that issue on the program on Sunday. What's your sense of the confidence that employees have that when it's safe in their local areas to start to move about, it'll be safe for them to go back to the office, Tony? Well, candidly, um, I believe that um, employees have more confidence um, in most instances um, in their states and local jurisdictions. Clearly, I can't make that generalized statement across the board, but I think oftentimes that's the case. I will tell you that I believe employees, look, federal employees are much like the rest of the citizens in our country, right? And if, you, if you're to believe the, the polls that are out there, something on the order of 85% of um, our citizens believe that we should continue to make sure that we have stay-at-home orders, that people are observing social distancing and being very disciplined about um, attacking this virus. And so my, my view is that uh, federal employees feel no differently and they're concerned because they're hearing all of the rumors. The drumbeat has begun that they're going to have to go to the workplace and people are afraid. There's a great deal of anxiety amongst my members around that. And so we are um, we're we're paying very close attention to this, Francis, because um, I, I think that we're headed for some real problems um, if people are required to come back in the office too soon. Do you have confidence that the group of employees that the IRS called back really needs to be in the office to process tax reforms? I understand there are issues with uh, PII on tax returns and things like that and, and the way that that information is handled, where it has to be handled. Um, are you confident that the group of people that they want to come back right now should be back in the office? Well, I think, you know, I mean, I, I will candidly defer to um, the commissioner of the IRS on that from the sense that, you know, my guess is that they certainly do need um, some of these employees to be in the office. I mean, I've heard reports of, you know, truckloads of mail that, that haven't been opened. So I think there are clearly employees that need to be um, at work in the office doing essential work. I think what this really underscores from my perspective, Francis, is the degree to which we have so many federal employees in this country who, who are so essential to our everyday lives. And I think the IRS, of course, provides a uh, very important, uh, plays a very important role in the economy of our country. So I don't doubt that uh, employees need to come back. My concern though, and I will underscore this um, again, if you need them back and they're and they're uh, need to be brought back in order to do essential work, make absolutely certain that they are safe. We have about 30 seconds left, Tony. This is all happening in the middle of Public Service Recognition Week. Uh, what does the, all of this, what does this make you think about when we think about observing federal and, and recognizing the work that the federal employees do? Oh, that's a great question. I and I I appreciate. I appreciate you asking it, uh, Francis. You know, Public Service Recognition Week really, um, I, I think, serves as a way to um, highlight the outstanding work that federal employees do day in and day out for our country. When you just look in terms of what's going on in our country now um, with regard to COVID-19, we have uh, federal employees on the front lines 
for example, at CBP, at FDA, uh, doing um, different things around trying to help us um, solve COVID-19. IRS employees that you just mentioned, and so many across um, all of the agencies, uh, they do incredible work, and I think they deserve our appreciation. Tony Reardon, it's great to have you on. One piece of advice, keep the COVID haircut after COVID's gone. Thanks for coming on, my friend. <laughs> Thank you, Francis. Up next, more telework and more video chatting means more pressure on Internet networks to keep everyone working. Straight ahead on Government Matters, pumping up networks to handle the stress. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. About 85% of federal employees are working from home. That's putting pressure on agency networks to accommodate the increased workload with minimal interruptions. Andrew Dugan's chief technology officer at CenturyLink. Andrew, thanks very much for coming on the program. What is the state of internet network performance during the pandemic? What are you seeing so far? Uh, we have seen some growth in traffic during the, uh, during the pandemic. We've seen about 35% growth on the internet backbone. And some days it's higher if there's, for example, a game download going on that day, a big game release. But overall, we've handled it really well. Uh, the networks have held up to the increase in traffic. What are the things that you're seeing that are driving that? Is it just the nature of the way that the agencies work and the shifting mission from time to time? Or are there other factors that you think cause the different highs and lows in the traffic you've seen so far? Um, we, we've seen a shift in traffic, you know, through the you know, the consumer internet users as they've been home and consuming more content. As it relates to government customers, we've seen a uh, an increase in traffic across our uh, our government customer base, including federal, um, state, and local. We've added quite a bit of capacity for those government customers. We've made hundreds of network augments in the last few months to accommodate their capacity growth. Um, and that includes uh, customers that support healthcare and education. Uh, we've also done some interesting things, you know, such as when the uh, hospital ship Mercy showed up in Los Angeles, we were asked to quickly put capacity in place. So within 48 hours, we were met the ship dockside with, uh, with capacity there. So we've, we've done a number of things to support uh, the, the changing environment. Is capacity the major issue at hand here, Andrew? Is it just the volume of traffic, the volume of usage, or are there other issues at play here too? Um, it, it is primarily driven by the volume of usage. Um, as people have gone to work from home, it's put a lot of pressure on different applications across the internet. You know, as an example, what we're doing here uh, using a conferencing platform is pretty common these days. And as people move to a work from home environment and they use these sort of video collaboration services, the amount of usage on those platforms grew quite significantly. And so we spent uh, quite a bit of time, quite a bit of activity in the first few weeks of the pandemic to add capacity to support uh, cloud-based services like this one that allow people to collaborate in this way. Does the increase in capacity and the increase in demand change the threat landscape from a security perspective at all? Um, I don't think it, it changes it necessarily. I think it 
it increases the importance of making sure that environments are secure uh, because we are relying today more than ever on the digital infrastructure that's out there. And, you know, if we didn't have this available to us right now during a pandemic like this, you know, a lot of our government agencies, a lot of our economy would struggle. And ensuring, you know, you could do whatever you, you have to do to make sure that your digital environment is secure, it, this pandemic just reinforces that importance. So does the volume increase mean then that the main security uh, implication is also just an increased heightened level of security. You just need to make sure that the higher volume is secured in the same way that you secured a lower volume. Doesn't sound like you need to add new yes. technologies or, or, or new capabilities. You know, I don't, I don't think the usage increase drives that specifically. It's just a reinforcement of the importance. Um, a lot of the techniques that were available prior to the pandemic are the same techniques that are being used now uh, it's just a recognition that if those weren't in place or weren't effective and someone was able to take advantage of those, that you could have a much more crippling event. If we have seen an increase in people trying to take advantage of the pandemic, um, take advantage of people's fears um, around phishing attacks and those sorts of things. Those are phishing is somewhat normal, but in times like this, you just need to have that increased awareness. What are you learning from this experience, Andrew, as a company and personally as a CTO that you that will apply in the post-corona world? What are you learning about infrastructure? What are you learning about architecture, the, the way that people work differently now, all of that that will apply in a post-corona environment? I'd say a couple of things. One is the importance of having a well-designed high capacity resilient network. We're, we're fortunate in that we have one of the largest and most well-connected backbones in the world. You know, for us, that really helped us absorb the capacity increase that we saw. Um, we, it also reminds us that we need to make sure that we continue to maintain those design policies around having significant headroom, having enough interconnection with other providers. The other thing that it really taught us uh, and this is something that we, we have understood for a while and something we've been working toward for a while, is the importance of having a highly dynamic network, a network where we can react quickly to be able to add capacity for our customers. One of the things that we've been focused on for years is building a software-defined network where capacity can be added on demand very quickly as our customers uh, need it and as traffic shifts. And that really helped us get through this pandemic as well. Andrew Dugan of CenturyLink, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you very much for having me. Up next, the next big telecom contract isn't where it's supposed to be. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who and how to speed things up. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The General Services Administration says it'll work with individual agencies to avoid more delays in the Enterprise Infrastructure Services contract. Jim Williams is former acting commissioner, uh, acting administrator at GSA. He's now a partner at Shamback and Williams Consulting. Jim, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Give me the kind of the thumbnail about what's led up to the latest apprehensions about the transition to EIS. 
Well, I think it's very simple. It's COVID-19. If you look at, you know, GSA put out their memo, Bill Zelensky did in March, saying we're going to start limiting uh, the existing contracts, limiting how you can use them and cutting them off. And then COVID-19 hit and people had to not only go home and figure out how to work, but the telecommunications and acquisition communities are busy trying to put in more bandwidth and, and trying to deal with that to put in more capacity. So I, I think, as I said before, if there was ever a legitimate excuse for a delay, this is it. When Bill put that memo out, it shook a lot of people because I think there were folks who've been going along the last two, three years thinking, well, they're going to extend it. They're going to extend it. I've got time. And there were a lot of folks that realized at that point, didn't they, Jim, that they didn't have time anymore and that they were serious. The GSA was serious about moving along. Now they find they actually do have a little bit of time. What, who has to do what to keep things on track? Well, I think the agencies are in are in very different phases. Some have already awarded, some have not issued an RFP, and GSA did extend the the date until May of 2023, which sounds like it's a long ways off, but it's not a long ways off if you haven't even issued an RFP. And I think there are many many reasons why agencies are at different places. Some were just better prepared. Some didn't have the leadership to push this. And, and I think they're, they're just uh, they're struggling, those ones that are, are not there yet. And one can't say, I don't think, that GSA didn't warn people about this. Before Bill was uh, handling this, Kay Ely, uh, who you know very well, was uh, in charge of evangelizing to agencies. And I saw her do so on an, any number of occasions, explaining to agencies, you need to get on this. What's the reason why someone in an agency would hear that message and would choose to not do something about it? Not to cast, you know, to point fingers at people in agencies, but to figure out how to make the next big transition work better. Well, I think you've had a lot of changes in leadership. I think a lot of the telecom people have, have left, and a lot of those people were older in their careers and they've retired. Uh, and I think it just wasn't a priority, even though everybody knew this was coming. 10 years ago. So I think what we can do next time is look at these agencies' internal capabilities and maybe leverage GSA acquisition. I said they ought to be leveraging FedSim. FedSim is great at doing this over and over because essentially you're doing the same kind of an acquisition over and over. So they learn lessons learned, whereas each agency is doing it once every 10 years. What would that look like? And, and what, who would have to decide this is how we're going to do it moving forward? Is that something that GSA can do? Is that something that should come from OMB? Is that something that maybe should be a legislative mandate? What does that look like, Jim? I think it's a partnership. And I, I don't know about a legislative mandate, but it ought to be something where they agree, meaning OMB, the agencies, GSA, all agree GSA will award not only the master contract set of contracts, they can award the big task orders, but they will do it on behalf of agencies, knowing that all agencies are somewhat unique. But FedSim could certainly do one contract award for all small agencies, but looking at whether it's DOD or DHS or DOT, they could do a separate one for that. But then they would sequence them and they would learn from one to another and have GSA do that where the agencies don't have the clear capabilities and capacities. And that's telecom leadership and acquisition leadership. 
and resources. And the model for this then, could that, could that model look something like the, uh, the award that GSA just made to CGI Federal, talked about it earlier in the program, for cybersecurity services to the, the 75 small and micro agencies? Is that the kind of model that you're getting at, Jim? Exactly. All right, what should we watch for the rest of this transition, Jim? What should people pay attention to, whether they're agency people or whether they're on the industry side? What, what makes a difference as far as hitting these timelines and actually making the transitions that agencies need to do so that they have the services they need to deliver mission? Well, I think uh, GSA is being receptive to exception requests. Do you need more time? Do you need to be able to use WITS the local services contracts, I know DOD is struggling and, and could use some flexibility on using WITS. GSA should be very flexible in entertaining those exception requests because these agencies are distracted right now. And, and the good news is that they've got the networks contracts in place and the WITS contracts and the local services agreements to be able to do what they need to do to deal with COVID. Also, as you're dealing with looking at how does the nature of work changing? They have this new contract called EIS, whereas they plan for how the work in the future is going to change, they can accomplish that under EIS. So I think it's really just watching the, the, uh, the RFPs issued, the awards, and I would say give the agency still time to do this well. You don't want them to do a facade competition where they simply do a quick paper exercise do what they call like for like and award back to the incumbents. That's just not good for government. Jim Williams, thanks as always. Great to see you. Great to see you, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.